This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So many folks feel overwhelmed by debt and are often very scared to consider bankruptcy due to the negative things that we all hear about bankruptcy. But the reality is different. It's not as bad as you think. Talking with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, let's talk about those misconceptions, Blair, because there's yeah. a lot of them out there. Hugely scary word, right? Bankruptcy from the time you're, you're a kid and t- until now, you know, it's synonymous with failure, with, you know, kind of the worst point you, you could ever face. But the reality is usually quite different. Bankruptcy is not the end of the story. It's really, it's a rebirth. It's, ch- it's a chance to start over. And the actual going through of a bankruptcy, in general, it's nothing like what you think. It's not as intrusive, not as horrible, not as difficult as you might lead yourself to believe. And part of the thing that makes it so big and scary is that shame, right? And shame yeah. th- it comes from thinking that everybody's going to know about it. Yeah. And that's just not true. No, that, that's a huge part of it. Is first off, you think you're the only person in the situation. Uh, which, you know, if, if you read any news report these days, Canadians are more indebted than ever before, and Canada is the most indebted of all of the G8 nations. So, you know, we, a lot of people have debt issues in, these days, and it's over 100,000 people, over 1,000 people a month just in B.C. see a trustee to do a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. And do you hear about all those 1,000 a month in B.C.? No, you don't. Uh, bankruptcy is generally a very private process. Right. So if most people think everybody's going to know about the bankruptcy, it's quite the opposite. That usually nobody in your life knows about the bankruptcy. The folks that have to be notified are first off, anybody that you owe money to who's not getting paid has to be told they're not getting paid. So if you file a bankruptcy, all your creditors have to get a notification and the trustee handles all of that. Does your employer have to be notified? No. The only way an employer needs to be notified is if things have gotten so bad that your wages are being taken, meaning that, you know, someone sued you already and gotten a court judgment and taken that judgment to your employer, which, my God, that's one of the worst things that that can be happening to you. You're aware of that all the time, and it's quite embarrassing. The only time a trustee talks to your employer is to put a stop to all that nonsense, to say to the employer, we are now involved, and federal law means that this individual gets all of their wages. They can't be garnished any further. So in general, your creditors will know, your trustee will know, and anybody that you tell about it will know because quite often people are just so thrilled um, that their life has turned around so completely and they've rebuilt their credit that a huge source of new clients for us is people confiding to their friends and family saying, I faced a tough situation. I got some help. Perhaps you should consider it too. Yeah. And you're not alone when you talk about the numbers uh, of people that face this on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the other misconceptions is that I'm going to lose everything. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I believe that until I started to study to become a trustee because by definition, you think, you know, if you're bankrupt, you you give up everything. And, you know, in some ways you do have to give up certain assets. Um, You know, if you've got a a house that's worth a million dollars with no mortgage and you owe $20,000 in debt, I'm sorry, you've got to figure out a way to sell that asset or get some money out of it to pay the asset. However, most people that come into my office who are thinking about filing a bankruptcy, they don't have many assets to, to really speak of. So let's go through what the government says, because the government says essentially if someone files for bankruptcy, it would be so 
fundamentally unjust if you took everything from them, that that's not a public policy outcome they want. So they've said that everyone is entitled to retain a certain base level of assets. And for most people, that encompasses everything that they've got. So first off is household furniture. So if someone files for bankruptcy, they have to swear a statement that these are everything that they own, and that includes their furniture. The way furniture is valued is if you had a garage sale or if you had Craigslist, what's someone going to pay you for your couch, your TV, your cutlery, all crazy stuff like that? The answer is not much, and the value you're allowed to keep is up to $4,000. So if someone files for bankruptcy, they do their own inventory of their personal assets. They value it at a Craigslist or a garage sale value. And I don't know about you, Elaine, but the last garage sale I went to, they recovered nothing close to $4,000. No, right? that'd be really yeah. good if they did, but it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. People <laughs> don't pay much for used furniture for personal effects. So yeah. unless you've got this rare piece of art on the wall, the grand piano, Steinway in the living room, you know, and if, if you were a musician, you'd probably keep that piano anyway. But unless yeah. you've got some really strange assets that have a lot of value, you're going to keep everything. Um, You're going to keep a vehicle if it's worth less than $5,000. So anything worth less than $5,000 can never be seized from you. And if your car is worth a little bit more than that, then you just make arrangements with the trustee to pay in the difference of the value. So if your car is worth $6,000 and you file for bankruptcy, you keep the car, but you're required to pay basically the excess of the value of the $1,000. A hugely important one, and I know we've touched on this in some past shows, but I think we can't um, belabor this point too much, is RRSPs. Some people have no awareness that RRSPs are protected. If you file for bankruptcy, you don't lose your retirement. You don't lose your pension fund, and you absolutely don't lose your RRSPs. So if you're considering, you know, I'm going to lose these RRSPs anyway, so why don't I cash them in to pay for debts? Stop, take a deep breath, call Sands and Associates, get some advice here because your RRSPs are protected. Yeah, which is a huge, th- I didn't realize that. Uh, and it's an enormous thing. I mean, that's yeah. that could be your entire savings account that you actually get to hang on to at the same time as looking after your debt and, and getting that down and getting rid of it altogether. Yeah, and it's, again, it's very, very important that you're aware of those facts because, you know, it's, that's your private pension plan. If you were working for a company, you'd, ne- you'd know you could never cash in your own pension plan, but when it's your RRSPs, you have the option. And my advice is just don't take that option. Don't do it. Yeah. What about your credit? That's another piece that you think, oh, if I declare bankruptcy, my credit is just going to be awful from here on in. Right. So again, more more myth than fact there. Now, anytime you don't pay back your debts in full, your credit's going to take a hit. So every debt that you have, they're reported on a scale and it's an R scale. So R1 is perfect credit. You know, you never miss a payment. You're on time with everything. You're not over the limit every month and all the way to an R9, which R9 is you're in bankruptcy or the debt's been written off or you've skipped the country or something like that. So bankruptcy takes you to the opposite end of the credit spectrum in terms of, you know, having a good credit rating. Um, But what I encourage people to think about is that this is a temporary situation, right? So if you file a bankruptcy, and most bankruptcies are finished within 9 to 21 months, so, you know, under a year for about 80%, under two years for pretty well the balance, you can start to rebuild your credit as soon as you're discharged, So even though for six years after you file a bankruptcy, it's going to be reported on your credit that you filed for bankruptcy, most people can rebuild their credit in as soon as two or three years after their discharge from bankruptcy. So it's huge, two or three years. Yeah, and we've learned that that's often what what lenders or banks will look at is the last two years, not your entire history of 10 years or whatever, if that includes the six that you're still, that that's still listed. Exactly. And that's so important to understand too, is 
really it is the two to three year window. So, you know, if you, you know, hanging your hat on, I've got 20 years of history with this bank and they know me and they, they would always approve me for everything. The 17 of those 20 years don't really count yeah. a- anymore. Um, and again, keep in mind, if you're delaying taking action on a debt situation, if you're just making the minimum payments each month because you want to preserve that perfect credit rating, you know, the better decision might be to allow that rating to take a hit, knowing that you can rebuild it in the space of a few years. How much better off are you going to be with a rebuilding credit rating, but no debt compared to a perfect credit rating, but a bunch of debt that it's just a matter of time that you may never pay it off. Right. Just sits there and accumulates. Mm -hmm. Um, So the other misconception is meeting with somebody like yourself, a licensed insolvency trustee and, and all the, uh, the scary things that people think that that is, I can tell you having known Blair for a while now, (laughs) it's not very scary, but the process isn't scary either. And that's a misconception that it is, that it's big and awful. Yeah. And so, so definitely, you know, we understand when people come through the, through the doors to our office, it's not a call that they make lightly. It's not a meeting that, you know, they really, you know, take a nonchalant approach to, you know, people really struggle. Um, they really judge themselves. They get depressed. They get down on themselves. And quite often it takes them two years um, to finally figure out that, hey, I found out where I need to go for help. I've got the courage to make the call and I'm going to show up for that meeting. So the worst thing you can ever do to somebody in that situation is make them feel like they've made a mistake coming to see you. And you do that by making them feel judged. Right. By saying, well, you know, how'd you make this mistake? That didn't make, didn't make any sense. And, you know, what, are you, doing? what, what are you doing here? And, <laughs> yeah. you know, going through the credit card statement line by line, asking about everything. Oh, uh, it sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. And I'm, I'm caricaturing it here a bit because I just can't imagine ever doing that on a human to human basis. Right. What we proud, pride ourselves on at Sands and Associates is we understand anybody could be in a debt situation. For most people, it's circumstances. It's a life event. It's a job loss, an illness, a relationship breakdown. It's stuff that life happens. Happens, and it's all what you do to fix the situation. So we take a very empathetic approach. And one of our slogans is, you know, you can lose your dignity, sorry, you can lose your debt, but you can keep your dignity. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to impact your self-worth coming to see a trustee. And we treat everybody with respect and empathy. The fact that you're in this in this industry, you must have thought about and, and uh, theorized where these misconceptions come from. Yeah. Yeah. Where do they come from? Like, why do why are why is it such a scary notion for folks? You know, part of it is just pop culture. For example, you know, the word bankruptcy is thrown around in a bunch of different contexts, and you know, it's a shorthand for some things. You know, a shorthand for failure or a shorthand for losing everything. You know, even moral bankruptcy is you know a pretty horrible right. situation to be right. in. Um, but in terms of you know the the actual nuts and bolts of what people believe about bankruptcy, a lot of it comes from us getting U.S. news, and the U.S. bankruptcy code is a lot more difficult. A a lot more intrusive and a lot less all-encompassing than the code is in Canada. So two big differences right off the top is if you owe the government money um, in the States you know, for income taxes and you go into bankruptcy, you will still owe that money when the bankruptcy finishes. You can't walk away from Uncle Sam. In Canada, if you owe the government money for income taxes, it's the same as every other debt. The government doesn't have a special status. So for someone who's self-employed, that's the difference of having the hope of restructuring in Canada versus in the U.S. having a debt that could follow you around forever. 
Same type of treatment for student loans. You know, student loans in Canada, we can deal with. In the U.S., that can be, you know, a life sentence that you've got to carry that student loan, especially if you're not working in the field or earning income. So the takeaway here is don't self-diagnose. Don't assume that um, you know a bunch of the facts. Just get some advice from an expert who can explain to you exactly the benefits of Canadian law and how it differs and how it can impact your situation. One of the best things uh, besides talking to you and listening to your information is your website. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's easy, uh, sans-trustee.com. And I remember uh, doing a lot of reading on it. There's literally pages of questions that the the frequently asked questions segment where uh, question after question uh, that people, regular folks have about this process, what it looks like, what it feels like, what can I expect? Um, And I think that's a a huge, a huge benefit uh, to Sands and Associates is that information alone is really, really beneficial. If any of this information resonates with you and you'd like more information, as I said, the website, uh, sans-trustee.com, check it out. You can book your free consultation with one of the experts and experience that empathetic person on the other side of the table listening to you and and working with you to figure out your debt situation and uh, with the goal being that you can start living a debt-free life. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. The segment is all about scams in Canada and the kinds that we're faced with day in and day out. Evan Kelly is our guest. He's a senior communications advisor for the Better Business Bureau and project lead for the national top 10 scams in Canada. He's been with the Better uh, Business Bureau for about three years. You know, Evan, it's pretty scary out there these days. Uh, Makes it pretty easy for folks uh, to fall victim to financial scams. Is that what you're finding as well? like crazy kind of numbers of people? Yeah, it's, you know, Can- Canadians in 2016 lost uh, over $90 million to scams. That, that, that's what's reported to us and reported to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. We know that's only about 5% of what's actually reported. Wow. So if you do some quick mental math and mental mm-hmm. gymnastics, you're looking at $1.8 billion or more that's actually lost to scams. Uh, and, 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 you know, certainly financial scams, investment fraud, employment scams. Advanced fee loan is one that keeps coming across my desk, too, that are, that are a real problem for people. Now, say that again. What did you call it? Advanced, advanced fee loans. Advanced fee loans. What, it, what is that? I've never heard of that. First and foremost, in, the, in Canada and the United States, it's illegal to charge uh, someone to do before dispersing a loan. So it's called an advance fee loan. It's illegal. You can't do it. Okay. Uh, if you're getting the money from a lender, they can tack on a fee at the end, or they could even take off um, their fee from sort of the principal, and then you pay back uh, um, the total. But asking someone to say, okay, we give, we've given you, we've got you secured for a $10,000 loan, but we're going to need $2,000 in security. And I see this happen all the time. It's, you can't do it. And what happens is these fly-by-night uh, website companies, they set up shop, um, they, they approve people for these loans. It looks great. It looks legitimate. Then they start asking for money. They give a little bit, and the loan never shows up. And it's, mm. I get calls constantly about this. Wow. And that's sort of the number one thing right now that you see that comes across your desk? 
the number one scam for BBBs across Canada, and that's what we did. We used our scam tracker web web page to come up with some of the numbers, and we found with the with the, the ten BBBs across Canada, the number one scam was employment scams, and that's uh, where only only about five point three million was lost that that was reported. But it's again, this is a scam that keeps coming across my desk. These are check cashing schemes. Oh. Uh, there, people are, are are getting offered jobs that they haven't applied for. They haven't got much of an interview, and and they send you a check for roughly $4,000 in around that ballpark. And then what they do is they get you to deposit the check and then withdraw uh, money for yourself for whatever the job happens to be or some office supplies. You might be a stay-at-home administrator. Uh, and, and then they get you to, to send back the bulk of the money to the company to test their payment scheme. Uh, lo and behold, the check's fraudulent, of course. And, but a lot of people don't realize if you deposit a fraudulent check into your bank, you are 110% responsible for that money, even if it bounces. Right. And, and Evan, I've, as you were talking, I've seen that particular scam at least five times this year in, wow. in, in my clients. So again and again, it's, yeah, I got this check. It looked legitimate. And to a person, the client said, you know, the bank cleared it. And, you know, I waited 30 days. I waited 60 days. The bank cleared it. Nothing came back. Uh, but, Evan, do you have a sense? Is there a time limit on this? Because for the it's, people that I've you know, seen, it's yeah. It's one of those things. Like every bank can be obviously be different. It's, and it comes down to when the bank can actually get a, a set of human hands and eyes on this check looking it over. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes it takes time. You, yep. you, you're, you're, you know, you're supposed to have like 10 business days to clear. And, but you've got to make absolute 110% certain that this check is valid because the bank is not responsible for it. I mean, could you imagine if you could just go in and deposit fraudulent checks and take the money out? None of us would be having these day jobs. I'd be just going out, <laughs> depositing $10,000 a day and living my life. Sounds like a good gig to me. <laughs> uh, you know, I think one of the pieces, too, with, with these kinds of scams uh, is that there's, uh, for the average person, once they realize they've been taken or are being taken, the idea of then coming forward uh, can be pretty difficult to even comprehend because one would feel so foolish. But I have to tell you, and, and I didn't think that I'd ever have a story that that related to this topic, but we have a very, very dear friend of ours, very smart guy, very senior in terms of his knowledge base of his in his career, and he got this incredible job offer to uh, to move to some fabulous I can't even remember what country it was, but in the South Seas, uh, this it was a civil engineering company that was interested in having him on, and he was good, he was ready to jump full swing, and then he realized. That that, of course, it was just one of those employment scams. And we were shocked, one, that he fell for it uh, because, you know, he, he's a bright guy. Why would that happen? Uh, but two, that those exist. And it's so easy. I mean, the, the amount of due diligence one has to do these days uh, just to yeah. sort of keep out of this realm is extraordinary. Yeah, I had, I had, I had a lady uh, email me yesterday about a, a position she was offered as a uh, collections agent for a Japanese uh, medical manufacturing company. And again, like we saw a gentleman earlier last year lose $30,000 to that particular scam, but it, they're, they're very detailed. They have lots of forms to fill out. They have these websites that look really good, but once I looked at the website, there's none, nothing was clickable. You couldn't mm-hmm. order anything. It was, so it was clearly, clearly a scam. Um, but it, it happens, and it happens uh, to the best and the brightest of us. I mean, uh, BBB did some research last year. 
um, and uh, to, to find out uh, who gets scammed the most. And what the numbers actually surprised us. We, you know, conventional wisdom would say seniors and and, and um, immigrants are, are targeted most, and there are the ones who fall for scams most. And while that is true, they're targeted. What we found is millennials were actually uh, more susceptible to scams than any mm. other age group, and that, that kind of shocked us a little bit. Now, any have you got any be- sort of other um, data as to why that was the case? Like, what's the theory about that? Because that surprises me too. Yeah, they they have what we call this optimism bias. It means that it's, it's you know mm. they're sort of young and confident, and I'm tech savvy, and I know about computers and all this stuff. So how could I possibly get scammed? I'm smart and in the know. So right. that's really what it comes down to. You know, but, but on the flip side, seniors lose more money. They're scammed less, but they lose more money. They've got more money to give. So, hmm. and the, and I think the the older you are, the more senior you are, the the easier you can be frightened as well. Especially if you're on your own and you don't have anybody to turn to, and you're not sure about yeah. this. I mean, uh, the CRA stuff that that people yeah. get in, on emails or or, yeah. or banks phoning you and saying you owe this money. Uh, like, are you kidding me? That I mean, that's just. Oh, just brutal! Yeah, I hate that. Lot. That happens a lot still, and then you know, and it's and and yeah, there's a lot of reasons why seniors will give away their money, of course, and it's and, and a lot of it comes down to those those items you mentioned. But they also did a study in 2014 at Northwestern University that found as we age, we actually start to trust more, mm-hmm. and so that's why we become more susceptible. But it's a, it's a double-edged sword where we can get scammed, but at the same time, it makes us happier, and we stop sweating the small stuff. So it's. Hmm. It's just kind of interesting. It is interesting. Right. Now, Evan, I wonder if, if you can speak to one scam that I've seen a lot in my day-to-day at, at Sands & Associates is romance scams. <laughs> um, and it, it's folks that I, I never thought, you know, this is not the typical person that you would think would, would fall prey to, to a scam. But it sounded, you know, from the way it's explained to me, it was a very gradual thing. It was done, you know, very <laughs> clever. And it was only at the end do you realize you're, you're left holding the bag. So I wonder if you can speak to, you know, how someone would know they're, you know, being led down a path that, that's not a good result there. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of keys to, to look out for in, in catfishing, which is called or romance scams, online dating okay. scams. We lost yeah. $17 million Canadians gave away last year, and that's probably just a drop in the bucket. Um, you know, basically, these there's, there's a, it's believed that about 20% of online dating profiles are fake. Wow. Um, and which, which means you're going to get a lot of attention from people who haven't actually viewed your profile. Um, and so what they try to do is they try to get they try to drag you out of the uh, um, the online dating site very very quickly. They'll say your profile looks great. Email me here. I'm really uncomfortable on the site. You know if you could just you know even send me your email address and we can we can get this dating going. And typically they they come up with the stories about the, how they're not actually in the country or they're serving in Afghanistan or they're um, contracted in Britain at the moment, but they're going to come home, come back and marry you and it's going to be great. And they, they they're just strung along sometimes for months. But then the then the, the story comes out that oh no I've had an accident uh, and and I'm in a hospital and I need some money. Mm-hmm. We've seen you know people here lose a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars a shot wow. on this stuff. You know and people just got to recognize you know uh, you know if you're never going to meet this person in meet this person in, in public or in person if you will it's then then it's likely going to be a scam. So, but it's you know we get caught in we got caught into it. It's about trust. It's about love. It's about loneliness. It's you know and then it becomes about money. So. We get we get sucked in uh, on a whole lot of levels on this. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if it's done with some sincerity and authenticity, and you're thinking, "Oh, this this person really does want to meet me, or this person really does need my help." And oh, it's, they're just 
it's just so manipulative and awful. The the thing that oh man oh man, Uh, one of the things you said in the very start when we first started talking about uh, dollars uh, that you that the that the Better Business Bureau knows has been fraudulently taken, and it's about five percent in one particular thing we were talking about. Um, Such a, a small percentage, but. I know that if you see something that doesn't look right or feel right or sound right, you guys are the are the first stop to make or the first people to talk to about it. Mm-hmm. I wish more people. Yeah, I wish more people would talk to me about it or ask me ask me questions. I do get a lot of emails like, "Is this legit? Does this job offer look legit?" And I can direct them and point out all the the, uh, the little red flags that I can see, uh, which points to a scam. You know, so. It's, uh, you know, we're here. Absolutely. Give us a call. And if we have been, if, we, if we've already taken the bait and uh, sort of fallen victim to this, uh, again, you people are the best ones to talk to first. We're, we're certainly an, an avenue. What, you also want to talk to local local authorities or the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. You know, talk, talking about, you know, numbers lost. And, and it, it does become, you know, uh, one of those things where people ask themselves, and you were right mentioning early on that they feel bad, they feel ashamed that they were taken for a ride, they couldn't believe it. Um, sometimes it might be just a couple hundred dollars that there was taken by some scam that began overseas. Well, you know, what are the chances of you actually getting that back? I think people probably get a little bit exasperated knowing that, you know, as as the the good work the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre and RCMP are doing, the chances of getting that money back are are pretty slim. You've got to, you know, you're you're left weighing the effort to make that happen or to just kissing that money goodbye, right? So it becomes a bit of a balancing act sometimes. Absolutely. Uh, Evan, thank you so much. We've been talking with Evan Kelly, Senior Communications Advisor for the Better Business Bureau and Project Lead for the National Top Ten Scams in Canada. If anything we've talked about resonates with you and that you feel, uh-oh, this feels what I'm involved in right now. It's not going like a, it's like it should, or you've heard some things that sort of remind you, oh, this may be a scam. www.bbb.org is the Better Business Bureau's website uh, to contact Evan and his staff. Evan, thank you so much. My pleasure. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scullin with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. Get a financial fresh start by calling 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. We've got Greg Carter on the line. He's vice president of TransCan Leasing here in Vancouver. TransCan Leasing aims to provide their clients with reasonable options, and I emphasize the word reasonable options, to acquire new transportation, even if you find yourself facing some credit challenges. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thank you. Great. So vehicle financing... Uh, it takes up a huge part of the household debt ratio. And longer lease terms are just brutal for some folks who are facing credit challenges. What makes TransCan leasing so different from everyone else? Well, first of all, we we set this up from perspective of a client. It's a, a, a multi-legged stool. Uh it has to be fair for the client as well as fair for a dealer and fair for us as a lender. The, when I first came back up to Canada, I'd be in the States for a while, there were no 
reasonable rates that were set up for people, especially in bankruptcy and proposal. There are programs in the states that are really quite advantageous, but there was nothing here. Everything was extremely high interest rates. We wanted to set up something that was fair, and we felt that in setting something up that was fair, um, our customers would respond. And, and the reality is we have a very, very low failure rate on our program, and I think it's because uh, because it is fair to the customer. The rates are in the 11.9% rate, and, and normally those clients previously have been looking at, at 29 to sometimes 39%, which is um, very difficult on them. Yeah, Greg, I, I, can, I can vouch for that. I've seen clients bring in some vehicle financing documents, you know, sometimes from some of the very large banks that appear, you know, very customer friendly. Um, and yeah, rates north of 25, 29% for a vehicle financing. It just, just, you know, seemed insane to me. So when I became aware of TransCan program, or TransCan's program at 11.9, I thought, yeah, this is something that, that's unique in the marketplace and was really happy to, you know, give, give a bit of a platform for our listeners to, to be aware of it today. Um, Greg, I wonder if, um, you know, just from a basics point of view, because, you know, some of our, our listeners have owned many vehicles before, some, you know, might be thinking about their first purchase. What's the difference between a lease versus a loan versus buying the, the vehicle outright? Can you talk about those various options? I can. Great, great question. First of all, um, when sometimes we have a customer will say to us, I don't want a lease, I want to own and my response generally to that is, well, what happens if you miss a couple of payments with a bank? And the easy answer is, well, they're going to take the car eventually. And my comment then is, well, you don't really own the car until you've got it paid for. The bank owns it. So we're no different. We're just another method of financing, but financing at much lower rates, much lower payments, which then allows the customer on their budget to be able to afford much more car um, there's two kinds of leases. There's an open-end lease and a closed-end lease. The open-end lease, in general, means that the customer is on the hook for the vehicle at the end. They have to make all of the payments. Oftentimes, they have to make all of the payments plus the buyout at the end to get out of the lease. That's really onerous on the customer. We have what we call a closed-end lease or a walk-away lease. What it means is, at the end of the lease provided the customer stays within the terms of the lease, which is normal maintenance on the vehicle and within the kilometer range that we allow, which is very fair, uh, the customer can give us the car back. If they want to buy it, they will always have a buyout figure, which is invariably well below market value. We do not require our customer, if they want to buy out early, to pay off all of the balance of the payments like many lease companies do. We have a $495 early payout fee if they want to get out, but it's at whatever the depreciated value is. So we've created all kinds of options for the customer that do not leave them stuck into a huge hole. The idea is that the end on a five-year lease, we, the end of two or three or four years, we want that customer able to come back to us. If they've been a good customer, we will release them at a much lower rate. That's such a, a benefit too, Greg. I can't, I can't. It's hard to sort of not understand it, but fathom that that this is the kind of operation that you guys run. Um, in that, because it is so fair, and you're actually giving people a, an enormous uh, help 
in this day and age, it's almost impossible to either work or do business unless you happen to live right in the center of where you're working uh, to not have a vehicle. I mean, tran- transit's fine, but it's, it doesn't always meet all the needs. Uh, and often that's the biggest challenge is, is folks being able to get from home to their work and to get back uh, either in a reasonable time or, or ha- having a reasonable cost to it. That's really quite extraordinary. Elena, we don't think uh, uh, quality transportation is a luxury today. It's a necessity. You know, uh, the, the public transit provides a wonderful service, but it, uh, for many people, it, it, they can't survive with it. Yeah, if it works for the person, it's awesome. But if it doesn't, uh, you're, you're, you're left with nothing. So a car is, is one of the options, if not the only option at that point. Now, uh, one thing I'd really like to add is that um, our failure rate on our um, our bankruptcy and proposal program is remarkably low, and it's because it is fair. You know, um, nothing works very long if it's not if it doesn't work for all parties. And so, uh, as I said, our failure rate is is amazingly small, and that's why we can continue to do it. And, and Greg, I know when clients come in to, to see me, you know, they're obviously very worried, can I keep my house? But second to that is, can I keep my car? Or if I, you know, if I'm in the wrong car, will I be able to get a car if I filed, you know, a bankruptcy or, or a proposal? Um, so I think it's excellent if someone's listening today just to know that, you know, if you have to restructure your debts and the vehicle is part of that, um, you're not going to have a situation where you can't get a new a new vehicle. Um, there are options for you, even if you're restructuring your debts, either in a bankruptcy or, or through a consumer proposal. So I think it's good for people to know that you can sort your debts out and not have to be without a vehicle. Um, I wonder, Greg, if you could talk a little bit about how credit ratings um, impact what options people are provided with when they're seeking a, a new vehicle. So if someone's got great, great credit, you know, what's, what's the impact of someone, you know, again, is, is in a bit of a tough credit situation, um, how does that impact the options that are presented to them? Well, I think uh, that's a, another great question. I think a lot of people really um, don't have any idea how important a good credit score is. And, uh, and of course, a good credit score really isn't important until you need it. <laughs> and then once you need it, um, uh, boy, it means, it means potentially you, you might not even get an apartment that you want to get. Uh, the cost of everything you do, do do is far more expensive if you are uh, have a low credit score. Uh, there are the banks, the lenders typically have tiers that the higher your credit score is, the lower your interest rates are, the better programs that you can get. And um, one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that uh, a loan taken out before filing for bankruptcy or proposal does not count towards rebuilding credit. And so uh, everything that we do, and Blair, you already know this, is reported to the credit bureau. Right. And we specifically coordinate it so that people take possession after they have filed their bankruptcy or proposal so that every payment goes towards rebuilding that credit. It is critically important. Our goal, if we do our job, we tell our customers this, if we do our job, if the trustee does their job, and if the customer themselves does their job, by the time they're finished, they should be able to get the best financing available anywhere. And if that happens, we've all done our job and should feel good. And, and that's a great goal to, to work towards, um, Greg, in, in, indeed. Um, 
you know, I think, again, the idea of you're able to rebuild even from something that might be catastrophic as long as you do the right things. And one of those right things is showing on a monthly basis you incur an obligation and you pay it off and the credit bureau knows about that. And your program aligns something to report to the credit bureau with the necessity of actually having a vehicle. The, the, there is an old adage that is nothing builds your credit faster than 36 perfect payments on a car. <laughs> um, yep. And... Uh, you know, uh, um, you know the, the mortgage is critical long-term on rebuilding your credit score. But, of course, many people can't get a mortgage until they're reestablished. Yep. What are some of the things, Greg, that folks should think about uh, if, they're, if they're making a change and come to you and say, okay, this is what I need, this is what I have to do, what do I need in order to do this, or how can you help me uh, f- figure this out? What are sort of the considerations that people should be thinking about d- uh, that would determine what kind of vehicle they need uh, or d- versus the kind of vehicle they'd want? Well, uh, one of the things that we do, and I think it's a critical piece, is that we actually have the customers do a budget. And it, it's it's a budget that we back up with a couple of months of bank statements so that customer can actually see how much money they're spending on a daily basis and how much car that they can afford. The worst thing that we can do is put somebody into a car with a payment that they can't afford. That's basically setting them up for failure. And, of course, if there's failure... Uh, I personally guarantee every lease that goes out, so I want to make sure that it's a good decision for the client. Now, now Blair, I know when you work with your clients, you have them do budgets as well. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful, wonderful piece to moving forward uh, and getting these people back on track. Our our process for approving a customer really is is based on character and budget. So um, we we sit, we meet the customer, we talk to the customer, and then we have them do their budget and help them work with them to decide what they're pretty sure that they can afford. Never try and push somebody into something that they can't afford. We're going to be the loser out of that. And that's sort of the, I mean, it's sort of the bad side of some companies. You feel like you're, you know, there is a push, right, to get you into something that you not necessarily can afford or that you necessarily need. Uh, It's so nice to hear that you guys are actually doing the opposite, really paying attention to that. We don't carry inventory. We really, we don't advertise. So we have none of those expenses. We don't need to sell a car. We don't need to lease a car. Well, that's part of our, our base, our foundation, is that we never wind up in a position where we're pushing somebody into a car or too much car, something that doesn't work for them. We don't have to. And that's a huge advantage that we have traditionally over a, you know, a, a place that has huge overhead. We yeah. don't have it. Very much so. We've been talking with Greg Carter, Vice President of TransCan Leasing in Vancouver. TransCan Leasing aims to provide their clients with reasonable options to acquire new transportation. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Thanks for joining us. Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. Get a financial fresh start by calling 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. With Blair right now talking about steps to take when you owe taxes. Mm -hmm. And this is for, you want to pay attention to this if you're one of those people and there's tens of thousands of you, you're not alone, 
that you haven't paid your taxes. Yeah, you get that notice of assessment back. Instead of saying, you know, deposited into your account refund, it says, no, balance due. And by the way, we're charging you interest. So it's not a, not a happy notice of assessment to receive. And in some cases, it might go back a few years. I mean, I yeah. know lots of folks who just, for some reason, at some point, stop paying taxes. And I thought, are you kidding me? You, mm-hmm. you, you know, they have income, they have all that stuff. And yet... Uh, somewhere along the line, they decided, oh, no, I don't need to file my taxes. I'll have to pay a little bit at the end, but yeah. whatever. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I see that day in and day out. You know, I've, some people, they've went 20 years without, without filing taxes, just off the grid. And you know, obviously, they're not getting government benefits. They're not getting GST checks. You know, there's a bunch of reasons why you'd want to file your taxes every year. But the most important one is it's the law. So you not filing taxes is actually worse than owing the government a ton of money. That's okay. We can deal with that. But if you're a non-filer, that's actually the worst status you could be in Canada Revenue Agency's mind, because it's really, it's your job, part of being in civilization, is you got to file your taxes every year. And it has gotten easier too, Elaine. You know, 20 years ago, you had to do a lot of things by hand and calculators and all that. Most people can do their taxes inside of half an hour with some software. You pick up a Costco, you know, do five returns for $30. You know, it doesn't have to cost you a lot or take you a whole lot of time. Right. Now, a couple of reasons why people wouldn't, and I understand this, if you've got a bunch of different jobs. Yeah. So in terms of how you end up owing the government money, quite usually it's not a surprise, but sometimes it is. And something that could surprise you is if you're working multiple jobs, you know, say you got a second job to make ends meet, um, you know, finances are tight and you think you're doing doing something great, getting some extra income. What can happen is if your second employer isn't told off the top to deduct taxes at a higher rate, you might not be getting enough taxes deducted from your second job, which means at the end of the year, the government is going to want some of those dollars paid to you, paid back to them. And a lot of the times with a second job, you know, you're getting that money and you're spending it on necessities. You're not saving it. You know, it's extra money. Extra money. I I don't need to to hang on to this. This is extra money. Right. So when the tax bill comes due, um, you know, you can imagine the bit of the depressed feeling too, saying, oh my God, all, all this work. Now I've got to work extra hard to clear the tax bill from last year. One of the things, too, I I ran into a very long time ago, worked for uh, a company that decided all of its employees were going to be contract players, Mm, even though we had a very set time that we had to be in the building to do our job uh, for a certain time uh, every day, Monday to Friday. uh, But they thought, no, we're, we're pretty sure that this is okay. And they said one little proviso that you may want to save some money just in case <laughs> you may want to <laughs> they come back and say no you can't do this you need to pay this and this and this yeah. uh, and it was a shock to the company of course uh, Canada Revenue came back and said oh no what you people are doing as a company mm-hmm. is wrong but it was the onus was on the employees yeah. to then uh, pony up all the money that we uh, didn't pay out on a on a per check like you do mm-hmm. now in in most in most businesses. Yeah, I see that a lot in the film industry, specific to the Lower Mainland here, where a lot of um, you know not even employees because they're basically independent contractors right. and they may work on the same show for quite some time or you know under the same umbrella a bunch of different shows. But the big difference is the onus goes, and you can see why employers would want to do this. The onus goes from the employer to have to pay taxes on your behalf to Canada Revenue Agency to the 
onus goes completely to the employee that you're going to receive a gross amount of wages and your responsibility is to put money aside to pay the tax man at the end of the year or pay them monthly. But it's so much more work and more difficult for you having to do it yourself instead of being someone that gets a paycheck and gets the taxes withheld and everything is compliant from that perspective. Yeah, it's a little easier for sure. Oh, absolutely. But you know, I think you're right. In today's uh, working world, especially in a city like Vancouver, where you've got uh, not just film and television and and that entertainment industry going on, but you've got the huge tech sector too. And you can work on small jobs, small projects, uh, or contracts with various companies. And they don't necessarily have to be a Canadian company. They could be Mm -hmm. from the States, from California, and all, you know, different things apply. So really important to pay attention to that. Yeah. If you're not getting deducted taxes, if you're getting an amount that's no gross wages and nothing is taken off of it, take between 25 and 35% of it and just put it away. The best case is at the end of the year, you're not going to owe that much in tax, but at least you'll have a really good starting point if you do end up owing tax, if you saved some of that gross amount. Yeah. Okay. So good advice. 25 to 35% in the bank, in a savings account, do not touch. That's right. For the year. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, what other what other causes do we have for people that end up uh, owing taxes? Oh, yeah. Cashing in your RRSPs. Yeah. Hugely depressing one, right? Because yeah, quite is. often you're cashing in RRSPs as a lump sum to do something with it. And mm-hmm. often that something is to pay some debt. And, you know, usually that's a very bad move. And we'll talk about that on, on another show. But you don't have to cash in RRSPs to pay debt. But the impact is that when you cash in RRSPs, all that money comes into income in the current year. So when you put the money away, you got the tax break back however many years ago and you got a bit of a refund, but now the government is going to count that as your income. And when you pull the money out from the financial institution, they're going to hold back 10 to 30%, but that may not be even close to what your marginal tax rate is, depending on what your income is. Right. So it could be the case that at the end of the year, the RRSP money is gone, but there's a tax liability that could be significant for those RRSP funds when they were pulled out. So you might end up you know, just trading one problem for another meaning that you now owe the government instead of the debt that you tried to clear with the RRSPs, but you don't have your RRSPs anymore because they've been cashed in or at least a significant portion. So the very best advice when it comes to RRSPs, Don't touch them? Don't touch them. Consider it the same as a company pension plan. You can't touch a company or a government pension plan. You don't have that option, and that's a good thing because otherwise, you know, you might cash it in your time of need and not have it later. Treat your RRSPs the exact same. Don't cash them in in your time of need. Now, if I'm at the other end of my working life and I'm nearing the end of my working mm-hmm. time, uh, what do I do with my RRSPs at that point? Yeah, and that's when it's a totally different conversation. Then it's okay. At some point, you want to start drawing these down for the purpose, which is to support your income during retirement. So ideally, you're going to work with an advisor or you're going to figure things out on your own, but you're going to forecast your tax liability. So you'll know exactly what you can pull out. No that you'll have enough to make your tax payments at, at the end of the year. So it's important to do that calculation. It's also really important to remember that that does become income. Yeah. Like when you start taking that money out, which I, I went through with my parents and it was, I just thought, what? Yeah. We have to pay tax on that money for my dad? It's like, that seemed like a crazy thing. He's already, and of course they calmed me down and said, no, mm-hmm. 
That's that's the beauty of this thing is that this yeah. money's been saved. Now he gets to use it, but based on the income, whatever that may be, you've got to pay on it. Mm-hmm. That's right. The show is called Dollars and Cents. Sands and Associates experts in helping you get out of debt. For more information on any of the services we've talked about, go to the website sands-trustee.com for more information. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the ring.